Good morning. Join me in prayer, will you? Father, we have heard your word. I pray that we would welcome it gladly. Pray that you would speak to us through your word. Pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would help us to apply it in our lives. That we may be not just hearers, but doers of your word. That you may receive the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you had the assignment of selecting a family to raise the Son of God, what would you look for? What influences would you want to surround him with? What experiences would be important for him to have? Would you choose the family that you were raised in? We've been looking at the family God gave Jesus, trying to see what influences God brought into the life of his son through the family Jesus grew up in. So what do you think of that idea? Is it hard for us to think of Jesus' family as having an influence in shaping him? As he grew up, does that make him sound too human? After all, we fight with heretical groups that deny his deity. We, we openly disagree with the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons on that point. But we need to realize that it's equally heretical to deny his true humanity. We need to come to grips with his humanity as well as his deity. We need to realize that it was at his mother's knee that he learned to walk and to talk and to take care of himself. Those were important parts of his development. His experience of, of the human situation as he joined fully with us. And it's in that context that we also see how the influence of a godly mother as he grew up showed him what true servanthood is all about. What should servanthood look like in our homes? We have a unique opportunity in our homes to provide a role model for what we want the other members of our family to become. And all of us can be that role model. Each one of us, whether we're the oldest member of the family or the youngest. Today we're going to look at a very special mother. William Ross Wallace's poem, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle is the Hand That Rules the World, shows the tremendous power of a mother for influence in the home. So what kind of influence would Mary have exerted? I think Mary's own words give us the key to understanding her character. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 38, Mary's response to what the angel told her when he said, you are going to bear the Son of God, was, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary identified herself as God's servant she understood her identity in terms of being a servant of the Lord. 
and she provides for us the profile of a servant. And she shows us what the true servant of God is like. So take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 46 to 55. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 46. Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. I see in this passage some things that help us understand servanthood better. Mary is such a good example of that for us. And the first thing we see is that a servant of God is devoted to God's word. Devoted to God's word. This song of Mary in Luke chapter 1 shows amazing familiarity with Scripture. It's just loaded with Scripture. It shares a lot of similarities with Hannah's song from 1 Samuel that was read a few moments ago. But more than that, this song of Mary's contains more than 40 Old Testament quotes. How in the world did she know her Bible that well? We need to realize this took place in a time when Jewish girls weren't trained in the Scriptures. I remember a, a movie a number of years ago called Yentl. Anybody familiar with the story of Yentl? Yentl was a Jewish girl who wanted to study the Word of God, but they weren't training girls in the Word of God. So she masqueraded as a boy and snuck into the synagogue to learn God's Word. Mary similarly wasn't trained in the Word of God. How did she get to know God's Word so well? She would have learned it on her own. How could she do that? Well, she would be paying close attention when she heard it in the synagogue. And she would chew over the words that she heard. She would take them and hold them in her heart. She was also related to Elizabeth, who was married to a priest, Zechariah. So she would be able to ask questions of them about the Word of God. So Mary's knowledge of the Word of God came to her kind of piecemeal. She didn't have all the tools, but she made the most of what she had. The bottom line, it seems to me, is devotion to God's Word. She would hear God's Word, she would take it, she would hold it close to her heart. She was devoted to it. I know we all have Bibles. Many of us have multiple versions and multiple styles. We have red letter Bibles and study Bibles and online Bibles and 
chronological Bibles and Bibles for small groups and Bibles for students and Bibles for men and Bibles for athletes and Bibles for hunters. We have Bibles. The question that occurs to me is, do we have a love for God's Word? What's it take to get us to pick those Bibles up and to read them for ourselves? can't tell you how many fancy gimmicks come across my desk on a regular basis to try to get people to read the Bible. I've tried a few of them myself. But unless you see this book as God's communication to us, his self-disclosure, his revelation of his character to us, unless you love this book like the people loved it who gave their lives to put it in our hands... Unless you treasure this book as God's blueprint for your life, all the gimmicks in the world won't get you to read it. There is a point in the Episcopal liturgy where the priest elevates the Word of God and kisses it before he reads it to God's people. It's a a gesture of devotion. To the Word of God. We need that kind of devotion to God's Word ourselves. And we find that Mary had it. And what's more, we can see it in the lives of her children as well. They had it too. Jesus amazed the, the, the teachers in the temple when he was 12 years old. How? With his knowledge of Scripture. When Jesus was tempted, by Satan in the wilderness. How did he answer him? How did he defeat the tempter? He did it with Scripture. James, uh, uh, another son of Mary, said, don't just listen to the Word, do what it says. Jude, another son of Mary, told his readers that the antidote for false teachers is the Word of God. Where did these men get their love for God's Word? I would submit to you that their mother Mary played a major part in that. A servant of God is, first of all, devoted to God's Word. You can serve your family this week by being an example of someone who is devoted like that to God's Word. What's that look like? Prioritize God's Word in your schedule. Make that an inviolable part of your schedule daily. Get going on that Bible reading plan. Get involved in a small group study where you can dig into God's Word together. And when you're tempted to sleep in and to blow off your time in God's Word, ask yourself, do I really love this book? Devotion to God's Word. A servant of the Lord is devoted to God's word. Next, a servant of God is submitted to God's will. We find that in Mary's life. She's submitted to God's will. Our culture prizes self-assertiveness, not submission. We are rugged individualists. If I were to say the name Frank Sinatra, is there a song that comes to mind? Kind of his signature piece, my way. Tell me you don't like that song, please. 
Let me share just some of the lyrics. And now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. What's happening? He's, he's getting ready to die. He's looking back over his life. He's asking, what, what brings me comfort as I come to the end of my life? He goes on. My friend, I'll say it clear. I'll state my case of which I'm certain. I've lived a life that's full. I've traveled each and every highway. And more, much more than this, I did it my way. Yes, there were times I'm sure you knew when I bit off more than I could chew. But through it all, when there was doubt, I ate it up and spit it out. I faced it all and I stood tall and I did it my way. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. What a line. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Know what happens when you've got a room full of people who live like that? You know, it's like when you get a church full of people who want to live like that, or a culture full of people who want to live like that. And unfortunately, I see Christians living like that. Ultimately, self-willed, not surrendered to God's will. Not willing to say, not my will, Lord, but your will be done. And they sit in church and maybe go to Bible studies, learn more about God's word. They're surrounded by great teaching on the radio and in books. But when push comes to shove, they want to do it their way. To assert self-will instead of submitting to God's revealed will by submitting to and obeying his word. Because it's one thing to study God's word and fill our heads with knowledge. It's another thing to be submitted to God's will in our lives. Mary understood that and she studied God's word and submitted herself to God's will. Mary didn't just understand God's word, she stood under it. She submitted to the demands it placed on her life. And as her son James would later encourage other followers of Jesus, she was not just a hearer, but a doer of God's word as well. When Gabriel told her she would bear the Messiah, we find in Luke chapter 1, verse 29, that the news troubled her greatly. We find in verse 34 that the news perplexed her. And it probably scared her half to death when she thought about the consequences, embarrassment, suspicion, misunderstanding. But we see her response in verse 38. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She didn't seek to exercise her own will. She didn't insist on doing things her way. She submitted to God's will. Did you know that, that 95% of God's will for you is written, recorded in black and white? 95% of God's will for you is, is in your hand, in the word of God. The other 5% has to do with where you will be physically located while you're working on the 
that he has already revealed to you. That 5% sometimes becomes much larger than it should be and causes us to question the other 95. I think of my own life. I think about some of those decisions that were so large at the time. What college will I choose? Huge decision. But it had to do with where I'd be physically located while I was doing the 95% of God's will that he'd already revealed. And when I graduated from college, what branch of the army would I choose to go into? And when I left the army, what seminary would I choose? And when I finished seminary, what church would I serve? All of those enormous, enormous crossroads decisions, lots of time in prayer. But the bottom line is all of those had to do with where I'd be physically located while I was doing the 95% of God's will that I could be certain of. So get on with the 95. And here's a tip. If God doesn't like where you are physically located, he can cause a great fish to swallow you up and spit you out exactly where he wants you. That's on page 775. So get on with the 95%. You want to provide a godly example to your family? Show them by your life that God's word is to be obeyed. Submit yourself to God's will. Devoted to God's word, submitted to God's will. Finally, a servant of God is trusting in God's way. It's one thing to be devoted to God's word and one thing to be submitted to his will. It's another thing to learn to trust in God's way because his way doesn't always make sense to us. And because of that, we have to grow in trust. There's an old story about a man in Central Asia who owned a prize stallion. The horse won an award, and his neighbor came by to congratulate him, said, that's really good. And the man said, well, you never know. Next day, some thieves came and stole that stallion, and the neighbor came by to commiserate with him, said, that's really bad. And the man said, well, you never know. A few days later, the stallion escaped and joined a herd of wild mares and led them all back to the farm. And the neighbor came over and said, that's really good. And the man said, well, you never know. The next day, the man's son was trying to break in one of those mares and got thrown and broke his leg. And the neighbor came over and said, that's really bad. The man said, well, you never know. The following week, the army came by to forcibly conscript soldiers for the war, but they didn't take the son because he had a broken leg. And the neighbor thought, hmm, you never know. God doesn't always do things the way we want. We find ourselves sometimes disappointed by God. Have you been there? We pray for a favorable outcome to a job interview and we fall flat on our face and don't get the job. We pray for a friend's marriage. We try to intervene and, and that marriage crumbles. 
We pray for successful surgery, and the surgery doesn't accomplish what we had hoped it would. We pray for the recovery of a friend who is sick, and the friend dies. And I have found that it takes a far bigger perspective than the one we often have. There's a piece of information I found helpful a few years ago. Phase one in nearly everything God does through people is what I would call the birth of a vision. You have this grand vision that looks so wonderful, but you know what phase two is? Death of that vision. But there is a phase three, and it is resurrection of the vision that has been transformed by the touch of God. Have you found that true in your own life? I know I have. I remember planting the church in Wausau. We were so full of excitement in those early days, so hopeful of what God was going to do through us. And then two, three years into it, everything just fell apart. People got mad, people left, people pointed fingers at those of us who remained. And I got so discouraged, I thought about leaving the ministry. And somehow God got us through, and I grew, and so did the church. And now, it's more than I dreamed it would become. But my vision for it first had to die. Mary could submit to God's will because she had come to trust in God's way. The theme of her song in Luke chapter 1 here is God's intervention to lift up the humble and to bring low the proud. In verse 48, she says that God considered the humble state of his servant, and she's talking here about herself. God considered her humble state and, and chose to lift her up. In verses 51 to 53, she says God topples the proud and yet elevates the humble. In verses 54 and 55, she says God extends his mercy toward his servant. And this time she's speaking about Israel. Mary has come to trust in God's way. And her life matched her words. She didn't seek a position of greatness for herself. She sought a position of humble servanthood to her Lord. God's way stands in stark contrast to the world's way. What's the world tell you? If you want to be great, what do you do? You need to climb the ladder, right? Step on a few toes, maybe step on a few fingers even on the way up. The world tells you you can make yourself look good by making someone else look bad. The world tells you that you need to do to others before they can do to you. But what's God's way? It's the way of the servant. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, what? Learn to be the servant of all. To do that, you have to trust God's way. The family God gave Jesus was a family where servanthood was acted out on a daily basis by a godly mother. When Jesus would later speak of servanthood, uh, servant leadership, he would have a great heritage to draw on. When he would wash the feet of his disciples, including the feet of the one who would betray him, 
he would be living out the same kind of servanthood that he saw his mother living out day by day. I want to be the kind of servant leader in my home that will influence my wife and my children and my grandchildren and other people that God gives me relationships with to want to be God's servants too. And we can learn how from the example of Mary. Whether we're parents or grandparents, whether we're young people, whether we're growing up or full-grown, we can learn how to be a servant leader. Love God's Word, and let that love show in how you handle it. Submit to God's will in the midst of a culture that is self-absorbed. Trust in God's way, even when it doesn't make sense. When you do that, you will really be serving your family by providing them with an example that will be worth following. You'll find some questions for further thought in your program. I hope you'll make use of them this week. Maybe gather around the table and talk about them. Maybe you want to talk about them in a small group. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the example of this woman who your word tells us will be respected and honored throughout generations. So, Father, we want to recognize that and we want to understand the example of servanthood that she gives. I pray that you would help us to say when we are faced with choices, I am your servant, Lord. Do to me as you will. Use me as you will. Be glorified in me as I seek the place of humble servanthood. Help us do that, Lord, for your glory and for our ultimate joy. In Jesus' name, amen.